0: United Lutheran Seminary presents the Seminary Explores podcast. Conversations on faith, art, people, politics, theology, life, and more, with voices from around the corner and around the globe. Welcome to the Seminary Explores. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest is Lisa Erdman, postdoctoral scholar in the president's postdoctoral fellowship program, at the Penn State College of Medicine. An artist, educator, and researcher, Lisa holds a doctorate of arts from Aalto University in Helsinki, Finland. Her MFA in Electronic Arts is from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and her BS in Dance, Interarts, and Technology is from the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Lisa's productions have received numerous awards including funding from the Arts Council of Finland. She's participated in residencies at the Red Gate Gallery in Beijing, China, the Hungarian Multicultural Center in Budapest, and the Center for Health Education Scholarship at the University of British Columbia in Canada. In her current fellowship, she uses oral storytelling and theater improvisation to explore the role of everyday objects in communication between the patient and healthcare provider.
1: Lisa, it's great to have you on The Seminary Explorers. Thank you, Katie. It's it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Why don't we start with uh, the distinction between medical humanities and health humanities? These are a couple of terms that are
1: often used interchangeably. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so from my understanding, the medical humanities is a term that was, uh, it, it kind of, Rooted, it's it's rooted in uh, the idea of integrating um, a broader understanding of medicine in terms of uh, legal issues, in terms of history, in terms of ethics. Um, so there are, for example, some medical humanities programs in the United States, kind of embedded within medical school programs or as a standalone department, as you know, in the, in and of them themselves, mm-hmm. that offers um, students an understanding of of uh, medicine from those perspectives um, and also there are some uh, public health programs in the united states that offer this kind of medical humanities perspective but typically it focuses on historical uh, ethical and legal uh, pathways legal threads within medicine okay. Okay. and then health humanities um, started emerging as, as a way to incorporate the arts into that fold. Um, So the arts meaning literary, uh, literary arts, dance, uh, theater, visual arts, music. um, And so health humanities really encompasses all that we discussed as medical humanities, but also the arts. Okay. Could you describe something about your current teaching? um,
0: And the projects that yeah, the projects that you're working on right now?
1: sure so at penn state college of medicine in the department of humanities um i'm kind of i have like a twofold role here i'm working as a researcher using arts-based methods in medical education but i'm also teaching courses um, and these courses are required humanities courses for medical students okay so they're in the curriculum mm-hmm. yes and um there are three courses i've been primarily involved with One is uh, Foundations of Health Humanities, which uh, it brings to the table a number of different themes for students to discuss and self-reflect on, uh, including racism in medicine, ableism in society, um, gender bias. Um, And so in that course, we use film, uh, graphic novels, visual art, Um, and and literary pieces to discuss these different topics. And these are small group discussions. All the courses I'm talking about here involve maybe 9 to 11 students per class. So I'm I'm working as a facilitator for these courses, and then each course is uh, directed by two two course directors involving a clinician and a humanities professor. So each course is co-directed. Okay. Faculty. So, health humanities is, is one course, and then another course is observation and interpretation, and that is uh, it's an interesting course in that <clears throat> what it consists of is 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 basically analyzing examples of artworks, so and these can be paintings, it could be historical artwork. I mean, some of these works we look at are dating back to seventeen hundreds mm-hmm. um, Dutch Dutch paintings, for example. Um, and also contemporary work, contemporary photography is included. But we will spend time looking at artworks and using what's called the visual thinking strategy. Um, we delve into that visual work, and sometimes we'll spend up to 40 minutes on one artwork asking these three questions. Um, what do you see going on in this image or what is going on in this image? What do you see that makes you say this? Hmm. And then lastly, what more can we find?
0: Hmm.
1: And so in the course, uh, as a facilitator, I guide the students through this conversation using just these three questions, I mean, basically. And then um, in the second half of the course of uh, observation and interpretation, we, we try to have the students take over that facilitating role. So they okay. start, uh, they, you know, each student gets a chance to really guide the students through the... Uh, guide the other students through these visual thinking strategies um but the reason we use this visual thinking strategy is to to help students hone their their own observation skills as well as their skills and collective discussion about what they're seeing and the intention is to translate these skills over to diagnostic uh, skills okay. diagnostic approaches in medicine so for example by visually analyzing a uh, a a painting by Jackson Pollock um, and looking at at something like that or even a more representational painting. uh, We we did an analysis of Christina's world. um, Oh, yeah, Andrew Wyeth. Yes, Mm -hmm. Andrew Wyeth. And so by looking at those, um, the idea is to really really, uh, hone in, hone the observational skills um, and then... In the same class sessions, um, right after analyzing the artwork, we'll then look at the um, the X-rays, we'll look at X-rays, MRIs, CAT scans, um, and when we apply those same visual thinking strategies that we used in the artwork to the um, to the medical images. Uh-huh. Um, but there, you know, the other factor I was going to mention earlier is that we we try to get the students to you know to look at things collectively and. In doing so, develop a sense of teamwork in looking and figuring out what's in an image. Because, for example, uh, you know, if, there, if there's a patient that uh, suspected to have some kind of tumor or um, cancer, even you know, by having a collective team of healthcare providers look and examine images, one person in that instance might see something that someone else didn't, mm-hmm. and so to collectively. Look at images. I think is really important in that medical context because of this. Wow!
0: Um, and you also so that you have the the teaching part, and you also have the res, a research role um, in your current position. Um, something I'm interested in is your uh, your dissertation. Could you say something about that? And is 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 the way that you set up your dissertation and some of the things that you used when you were doing your research and writing of your dissertation? Is that being used in the research that you're currently doing?
1: That's a good question. Um, In a direct sense, no. But I would say that some of the performative elements I used in my doctoral project, which doctoral uh, media art project involved a public advertisement campaign for a fictitious medication called Phinexia that can help you learn the Finnish language faster and easier. (laughs) And it was based on my own desire to to learn the language more quickly uh, and to be more engaged in the Finnish culture. And so that project of Phinexia involved uh, public performance, interventionist strategies, um, and it was a full-scale advertisement. Um, We had had salespeople, students, a lot of students and professional actors presenting themselves as salespeople. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the primary mode of conveying that concept, which was in Phinexia kind of, um, it was twofold, You know, trying to bring people together in public space to offer the opportunity to discuss their experiences uh, and challenges in learning a difficult language like Finnish, <clears throat> Finnish language. Um, so there was this kind of dialogue space that was intended to be created, but also it was a satirical commentary on the over-medicalization of society. And so aspects of that, I think, are brought into my postdoc research at Penn State in, in the sense of um, storytelling, I mean, because I'm using storytelling and using performative approaches. Um, it's, drawing, it's drawing from Phinexia in that way. And So what I'm doing now... Um, with the medical students in the postdoc research is using role play scenarios clinical role play scenarios to have students get a sense of what happens when they navigate the space in an outpatient clinical setting so so for example a door is it's a way to enter a room but it also has implications for the patient depending on how the clinician knocks on the door uh. and how they enter the room or the chair off, you know, affords a way to sit down, but depending on how the clinician sits in the chair and positions their body in relation to the mm-hmm. patient, it may or may not uh, be conducive to conversation and dialogue mm-hmm. with the patient. So, so in these role plays, I give I give students um, note cards with different scenarios, depending on their role. You know, if they're playing the patient or the physician. Okay. If it's physician, I give them uh, kind of a psychological, like a mindset they're coming in with that they have to they have to improvise from. Like say, okay, you just had, you know, the, the the physician's note card might say, their prompt card might say, you just had a a terrible argument with your spouse. You're feeling irritable. You didn't sleep much last night. Given this, how do you enter the room? How do you knock on the door? Mm-hmm. And then the patient would have a list of symptoms. Um, And their mindset, which might include um, you have a very irritable, irritating rash on your arms and you're having trouble sitting still in your chair at some point in the in the medical visit, you get up and leave the room without saying anything. Mm. Um, So that might be a little extreme on the part Mm -hmm. of the patient, but it's Mm -hmm. an example of some actual scenarios I set up for the students. Then they, they act out the role play, which is about three to four minutes. And then we talk about it as a group Mm -hmm. and we ask them, we ask the role players, you know, how did it feel to take on those roles? Um, And, you know, how did you feel about the way you entered the room or if you're the, you played the patient, how did you perceive, how did, you know, how did you perceive the way the, the clinician came in the room? Did it affect the tone of the visit? Um, So these are subtleties of kind of environmental factors of nonverbal communication in the clinical setting. And to me, it's, um as a, as a person with a lot of experience as a, being a patient mm-hmm. <laughs> in like mm-hmm. clinical settings, uh, I'm very attuned to those subtleties. And mm-hmm. so I was interested in, in gauging medical students' awareness of those subtleties in nonverbal communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also asked them, as, as another part of the, of the research, I asked, these are fourth year medical students I'm working with, um, to convey stories they've had about experiences with clinical chairs mm-hmm. and clinical doors. And so mm-hmm. I had them in small groups share their stories. And then I asked each group to pl- to choose one story from their group, one memory, like a chair memory, one door memory, and physically enact that with no words. Um, and someone had to play the role of the chair, someone had to play the role of the wow. door. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it was very interesting and overall students, found it interesting most people said they hadn't thought of the significance of okay the door and the chair mm-hmm. in their interactions with patients they also said that uh especially the role of chair uh through their stories they shared with me realized that uh, how the chair is used who gets to sit in a chair and how many people are in the room in relation to the number of chairs reveals kind of medical hierarchies oh and yes yeah power mm-hmm. uh structures of power and medicine mm-hmm. Among the the physician, the medical student, the fellow, the resident, uh, sometimes there's a whole group of there's a whole healthcare team right. observing in a room along with the patient. And so a lot of discussion came up around that, which I thought was really interesting. Hmm.
0: Something that also comes to mind as you're describing this is now we have like our these clinical encounters are getting shorter and shorter. Like the number of minutes per visit feels like it's, you know, there there is not as much flexibility now because there's a lot of pressure for the, num- the number of patients that each clinician is seeing. Um, and these signals are even more important when time is limited, would you say? Or, you know, you don't have, if you have a longer time to have a conversation with someone, you might have, leisure is maybe not the right word, but you you might come around to uncovering some things. But when you have Limited time. It seems even more crucial to to try and not be giving sort of the wrong signal, or to or to not be you know th- going into stereotype territory right away, because
1: that is such limited time, right? Right. Exactly. Time is it's a it's an interesting thing in in healthcare, and you know, we bring this up in discussions with students and and it comes up inevitably I think as a, as a topic in every class I'm teaching it and then in these conversations within the research. Um, time is limited, but what I'm learning through my experience at, at Penn State in that uh, Department of Humanities is that even in limited time, there are small things you can do uh, that can bring a sense of presence to that clinical encounter mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm going to mention a name. Uh, he's been kind of one of my mentors um, at Penn State during my postdocs, uh, Dan Wolpaw, who um, is a, a wonderful scholar, physician. Um, he sometimes teaches the uh, observation and interpretation course. He wrote an article um I forgot the name. <laughs> I love. It, it said um, seeing eye to eye, I believe was the the article name, and uh, the article focuses on this idea of using eye contact with um, with patients, even if it's only for fifteen seconds. Okay, and just that that those short seconds can um, create a sense of presence and also value, bring a sense that that you are valuing that person. Mm-hmm. Um and so the article focused on outpatient settings like in the uh, I mean not outpatient, sorry, the, the article focused on um hospital settings and what Dan suggested was to use like a camping stool um, that would be portable enough to take around the ward to uh-huh. different bedsides, patient bedsides, so that rather than standing and hovering over the patient and giving the sense that you're you're thinking about where you have to go next, and mm-hmm. you're feeling hurried. Um, the act of sitting down on that simple camping stool, oh. and for 20, 30 seconds, having eye to eye exchange with the patient, um, in a sense, it kind of can extend the feeling of time that patient has, and that the and that the clinician has with that patient. So that's a very simple example.
0: Yeah. Well, and also, no matter. What the amount of time is, the quality of the time, and the um, as you were saying, the value, like the sense that that you are being valued in the interaction, that is sort of the the priority, right? And anything that can be done to help that, um, and it's it sounds like you're you're sort of adding to the toolbox of, of equipping students to have more ways to do this in whatever situation they end up being later.
1: Right, exactly. It's a, That's a good way to put it, that we're kind of building a toolbox. And, you know, a, a lot of what I'm describing requires um, a sense of mindfulness, mm, mm-hmm. developing a sense of mindfulness. And that's what one thing we had been talking about in our humanities and context context course um, in the last couple weeks is how to, as a clinician, how to recenter yourself before each interaction with the patient and yes time is going to be tight um, and time will be tight even if there is no sense of mindfulness but (laughs) whether or not there is a sense of mindfulness involved but um in, in the end uh all of these tools the mindfulness the presence i i think can be a healing experience it can promote healing uh, even in those few seconds in the yeah. interaction between patient and clinician, and that that goes beyond the prescription of any any medication, any any prescription drugs or anything. Uh, I do believe that part of the caring the caring for someone goes beyond the prescribing. <clears throat> it goes beyond the the diagnostic tests. It, it's it's uh, partly about, I would say mostly about being present with someone. Mm. Yeah.
0: So there's something, this is going slightly in a different direction, but something that I'm thinking of about teaching in particular. Um, I was reading an article from the Washington Post, and this is from 2014, so it's a little bit older, it's by, with Lillian Cunningham and Billy Collins, who was uh, one of our former um, poet laureates of the U.S., and he was talking about uh, teaching, and this is, a, this is a quote from that article. So this is Billy Collins. One day, years ago, I was on the subway in New York and a guy across the aisle kept kind of looking at me and finally he came over and he recognized me as his teacher. I thought about him, I taught him about 10 years before that or more. He'd since become an oncologist and I congratulated him on his success. Then he said, you made us memorize a poem. And I said, yes. And he said, I'd like to say that poem for you. And it was a little poem by Emily Dickinson that he'd carried in his head and maybe in his heart for all these years. Over the roar of the sixth train, he yelled that poem in my ear. And I think it was probably the most satisfying pedagogical experience I've ever had. And then... Lillian, the interviewer, asks, which poem was it? And he said, you know, I forget, to be perfectly honest, but I'll never forget him doing it. And this response, I will never forget him doing it, it's just resonating with me in in what you're describing. Um, and it also reminds me a little bit of doctor-patient encounters. So this is a, it's a teaching experience, but... Um, it's a short poem too, right? Something very short and it's this short encounter, but he has never
1: forgotten that. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that excerpt. That's that's really moving. I mean it's um yeah, it's it like you said, it kind of encapsulates this idea that the exchange is the, the, the essence of the exchange is is really foremost. It's it's very important. Um, speaking of teaching, and I know this is
0: probably something that you've—I don't know—it's tricky to, to answer. But I'm just wondering about wishes that you have for your students. It's a—it's a very complicated time right now <laughs> to be studying and practicing medicine. And what is something that you would that you would wish for them as far as the the questions that they're asking and the way that they're sort of going forward? into the world, um, especially as a, you know, as a, as a patient, as a researcher, as an artist, as someone who's really, you've got a lot of experiences that you bring to your teaching. Um, that's a, it's a tricky that's a question, question, but I'm so oh. curious. I'm just, you know, I'm so curious when I think of the, the spaces you're in and, and the way that you're teaching and especially this flipping and having students be the facilitators it's almost like um you know the the training wheels in that situation and then I don't know what are what are some things
1: that you would like to send them off with that's a great question I'm glad you asked that I I never really thought of that I, I just have to preface this by saying a lot of times in my role at Penn State I have felt like a novice because uh I've I've never worked in an academic environment. But, I mean, academic medicine environment before. I've never worked right. in academic. Other academic yeah.
0: environments, but not a medical, yeah.
1: Not an yep. academic yep. medicine environment. So, yep. I felt like um because I'm coming from an arts background that I'm the one who has a lot to learn from the patients, from the faculty, medical faculty, from the clinicians um, and in some ways I sometimes felt that I was undervaluing myself in terms of what I could bring from that how, uh, arts and humanities perspective. <clears throat> um, but now I feel as though, you know, one of the things I, I would advise the students to think about is, is um, to really think about how important it is, how, how important they are just as, as people and not only... Mm as clinicians, not only as their profession, and this goes into aspects of professional identity, which is which is something we talk about in some of the humanities courses, the formation of professional identity for medical students. Who are you as a clinician, um, and who are you as, as a person outside of medicine? And I think in medicine, um, in practicing medicine, I think it's important in many ways to merge those two in order to be... A clinician who who approaches patients in a holistic way and who can relate to patients in a whole in in a humanistic way. So, okay. humanistic sensitivity is kind of an official term that we use for developing that capacity. Humanistic sensitivity. Um. But yeah, I I for me, it's really important for the students to remind themselves that this is going to sound so simplistic, but. Just being there with the mm. patient has so much potential, has so much power. Um, as a patient, some of the best times, like I felt really good. The best I felt is when someone was sitting there listening to me. A clinician was, was listening to me and was attentive. Um, and then asked questions based on what I just shared with them. Of course, medical knowledge, medical training, the um, biomedical training, Human systems training is is so essential. You have to have that knowledge, but to really, um, really help people, mm-hmm. really help the patients, um, you need to be able to communicate well and trust yourself. If you have any doubts, um, don't be afraid to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to question what you think might be mm, a clinical error. Even mm-hmm. if you're a medical student, you may think that as a medical student, you don't have... The authority to question what's being done um, in, in treating a patient. You know, in you know, if you're witnessing a round of chemotherapy being applied to a patient, or being administered, or any kind of procedure, um, don't be afraid to to ask in a in a curious way, in a way that's supportive. Um, you know, mm-hmm. just, just ask. You know, I'd like to. I, I think we might look at things this way, or. Um, so trust yourself, be with the patient. Don't be don't be afraid to to question and learn. I think that's beautifully said. Thank
0: you, and thank you so much for your time today, Lisa. Um, you have been listening to the Seminary Explorers. I'm Katie Gibenhein. My guest has been Lisa Erdman postdoctoral scholar at the Penn State College of Medicine. Visit her website at lisaerdman.net, that's E-R-D-M-A-N, and her dissert- you can also see her dissertation there, which is beautifully designed as well as fascinating. So thank you again so much, Lisa.
1: Thank you, Katie, for having me. I appreciate it. You have been listening to The Seminary
0: Explores, a production of United Lutheran Seminary, with campuses in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We invite you to visit our website at unitedlutheranseminary.edu. All opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of United Lutheran Seminary or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America.